tragedy at the Greater Vancouver Zoo. We consider the animals at the zoo a part of our family. One wolf dead, another still missing after vandals broke in. New details about how the pack escaped. A grieving mother's crusade. To all the other women in this situation, please, please reach out. Raising awareness of domestic violence after her daughter was murdered. And blunt criticism from cannabis retailers. We have no say. We're not union members, we're not public government stores, and we're being held hostage. Why they say the government has an unfair advantage while job action drags on. You're watching Global BC. This is Global News Hour at 6. Good evening and thanks for joining us. Sophie is off tonight. And we start with a heartbreaking development in the escape of a number of wolves from the Greater Vancouver Zoo. Zoo officials revealed today all but two were recaptured and one of those that got away died tragically. Aaron MacArthur is live in Aldergrove now with the latest on the investigation and the painful discovery, Aaron. Yeah, painful is right. Officials at the zoo shaken up by what's gone on over the past several days. And as you say, one wolf still on the loose, another found dead on the side of the road. We watch these wolves grow up. You know, it's... We consider the animals at the zoo a part of our family. The Greater Vancouver Zoo updating the public on the escaped gray wolves. All but two of the animals have been returned to their enclosure. One was found dead on the side of 264th, likely hit by a car. Now one wolf remains on the loose. As a result of the senseless act, the pack, sorry, has lost two family members. Earlier this week, the wolves were released from their enclosure, according to the RCMP, on purpose. The zoo confirming Thursday someone cut through the perimeter fencing and then the fencing around the enclosure. Zoo officials cooperating with the investigation. There are cameras and uh, again, we are collaborating with the Langley RCMP um, as it is an active investigation. Come on. The one wolf still on the loose is a one-year-old pup named Tempest. Zoo staff don't believe she's a threat to anyone, but people are urged to use caution if they spot her. She's likely still in the area around the zoo. Her prime motivation right now is to get back with her family. She still is just a pup. And that's why we're asking that you do not approach her because if you do corner her, then, you know, I, I can't predict what she's going to do to protect herself. The zoo will be reopened to the public on Saturday. Anyone with information about the break-in or the location of the wolf is asked to call the Langley RCMP. We are all exhausted. Um, and just hoping for the best possible outcome for Tempest. Now, according to zoo officials, the wolves tend to get a little more active as the sun gets down and it gets cooler out. People in the area, especially along 264th, are urged to keep a watch out tonight. The chances of Tempest surviving much longer with this level of traffic out here, pretty slim. Chris? Sounds like it. All right, thanks very much for that update, Aaron. As the strike by members of the B.C. General Employees Union continues, other unions are coming out to show their support, putting pressure on the province to find a resolution. Richard Zussman reports on what's at stake. It's a strike with growing support. Over the last four days, leaders from the nurses, teachers and hospital employees union all joining the B.C.G.U. on the picket lines. 
I think people recognize that BCGU members, the 33,000 in the public service, aren't just fighting for their own wage protections, they're fighting for wage protections for all workers. Union power! The public sector unions are all currently without deals, with the province hoping it can settle one and have the others fall in place. For now, a significant hill to climb. The BCGU is currently on this limited strike, focused for now on liquor distribution. The Hospital Employees Union has paused their negotiations with the province. The BCTF is at the table on Thursday, and the nurses start in the fall. People should do is, is look at the fact that we're still at the table, as are many other unions, and take that as a good sign. Our goal is always to finish up at the table and not have any disruptions. The last teacher's strike was back in 2014 with pickets around schools like this one. And more than 500,000 students in the public system and their families will be watching the negotiations closely. The hope was there would have been a deal back in June. The province hasn't put on the table um, what most of us would consider a real certain way to keep up with the cost of living for members, but they've also made movement. A teacher strike would be hugely disruptive, but could pale in comparison to a nurse's strike during a pandemic. The union has delayed its negotiations as pressure ramps up. We are seeking a collective agreement that respects nurses. And while we know that the public appreciates and respects us, it doesn't always feel that way with respect to the health employers and the government. The unions have one more seemingly unlikely supporter, BC NDP leadership candidate Anjali Apadurai, picketing against the very government she hopes to lead. I'm running on a platform of bringing the party back to its uh, its roots, which is a worker first party. Still a lot of work to ensure striking a series of deals avoids a series of strikes. Richard Zuspin, Global News, Victoria. And Keith Baldry joins us now. Keith, you've done some calculations based on the inflation rate salary bump the union has mm -hmm. brought up. What did you find? Yeah, so the government right now spends about $38.5 billion annually on compensation in the public sector. That's almost all union, but also some excluded management staff as well. So a 1% increase, $385 million. Uh, that's been the increase for the last uh, contract rounds, 1% and 2%. But take a look at the inflation rate type numbers. 5% a year, each year for three years, totals about $11.5 billion uh, cost to the Treasury. 6% uh, much uh, higher at uh, $13.9 billion. And then you've got 7%. I don't think... We're going to get to that point, but that's more than $16 billion over the course of that contract. Keep in mind that once the wage increase in one year is paid, it remains in the base and has to be counted in subsequent years as well. And that's one big reason why those numbers are so high. Now, the deal that was on the table when the talks broke off with the BCG, if it goes to everyone, and this is how it works, all unions basically get the same deal, more or less, in terms of wage increases and compensation. That would cause the government somewhere between 7 and $8 billion, roughly. So no matter what the the settlement is, it is going to be a big number in terms of the hit to the government. But the good news is for the unions, this is a three-year fiscal plan. There's more than $10 billion in here that is unallocated and presumably has been set aside for some sort of settlement by and large with public sector unions. And let's hope that settlement comes quickly. All right. Mm -hmm. Thank you very much. Keith Baldry reporting from Victoria. Managers of a privately owned cannabis store say the labor dispute could cause it to close its doors. And other operators tell Global News they're facing the same situation. Kylie Stanton shows us why jobs are at stake. A lot of these are the last unit we have. Thursday is usually delivery day, a chance to unbox orders and restock the shelves. But instead, staff here at Mood Cannabis Co. are watching the product dwindle. 
we have about a week's worth of stock left. And once we run out of that stock, we will be cutting hours, unfortunately. Uh, we are looking at, you know, potentially closing a store, worst case scenario. When do we want it? Now! The BCGEU's ongoing strike action outside four BC liquor distribution branches has meant private cannabis stores have no way to secure product, despite having no part in the union or its fight. We have no say. We're not union members, we're not public government stores, and we're being held hostage. According to the Retail Cannabis Association of BC, several stores have been forced to close their doors with more on the brink. A situation they say is now shedding light on a larger problem. This is a fault of a monopoly. We need a contingency plan or we need multiple points of distribution in order to ensure that there's no disruption. The province was preparing to allow cannabis stores to accept direct deliveries of product from licensed producers long before the strike began. But until those start, stores have no choice but to go through the government channels. And the longer the strike drags on, the more significant the consequences. No matter what happens, British Columbians are not going to stop consuming cannabis. They are simply going to you know, potentially revert to unregulated points of access, which to my mind is, is very suboptimal uh, you know, for both the project of legalization and the health of the small businesses that I represent. The union had this to say. We have a shared goal. We want this strike to be over as quickly as possible. So join our voices, call on government, our employer, to get back to the table. There's currently no edibles available. But in the meantime, Kelly and her employer are wondering if they'll be able to put food on their own tables with the threat of closure looming. These are good people who are passionate about their work. Right now, it's very scary to not know if they'll have a job next week. Kylie Stanton, Global News. The B.C. Liberals have removed MLA John Rustad from caucus over his comments questioning climate change science. Earlier this week, Rustad shared a social media post questioning the role of carbon dioxide in global warming. He had been the MLA for Nechaco Lakes for five years and was the Liberal critic for forestry. He'll likely now sit as an independent. Liberal leader Kevin Falcon issued a statement today saying the move comes after, quote, a pattern of behavior that was not supportive to our caucus team and principles of mutual respect and trust. BC Wildfire Service has done some heroic work protecting people and property, but some are wondering if they're leaving a valuable firefighting tool on the shelf. Other jurisdictions use night vision to drop water on fires 24-7, but not BC. Why the technology isn't in use here. Next. They call it the Icicle Tricycle, the coolest ice cream truck in the Fraser Valley and the man who runs it later on the news hour. And summer surprises, a sneak peek of what the PNE has planned for its pandemic comeback a little bit later. Right now, though, an update on the Caramillos Creek wildfire. And while most at risk, those most at risk from the blaze were given the go ahead to return home this week, that doesn't mean the wildfire is under control. The fire at just under 7,000 hectares continues to burn about 20 kilometers southwest of Penticton and is still considered active. In the latest update, B.C. wildfire officials say there's been more visible smoke in the last couple of days, and that will continue to be the case for as long as the hot, dry weather persists. Officials are reminding everyone in the area, smoke that rises from green, unburned fuel 
or from outside of the fire's perimeter should be reported. BC Wildfire added crews continued to make good progress on containment lines. The recent all-out effort to contain the Karameos Creek wildfire in the southern interior has some critics wondering why the BC Wildfire Service isn't taking advantage of night vision technology in this year's firefight. Alberta Wildfire has already successfully tested the equipment this season, so one province has been able to implement it while another hasn't. Kamal Kuramali reports. It's been called a game changer in the fight against wildfires. Night vision technology for aerial crews. And your eyes will come down and look inside it. Headsets with goggles, helicopters with specialized gauges, and a searchlight, allowing the aerial fight to continue not just during the day, but around the clock. So when the Karameas Creek wildfire broke out near Penticton in late July and evacuations began, while firefighters were losing ground, many were questioning why night vision technology wasn't being used. For goodness sakes, we ought to be using them in B.C. Global News spoke to several firefighters who expressed frustration, saying it would have been a big help in the battle. B.C. Wildfire Service says it needs time to integrate the new tool to its stringent firefighting procedures across the province. One of the biggest risks is there's a miscommunication between ground crews and helicopters and potentially, um, yeah, someone getting injured because people not, are not fully aware of what's happening at night. The night vision goggles and helicopter had been successfully tested by BC Wildfire Service two years ago. Meanwhile, Alberta Wildfire tested it for the first time only this past spring and has already been able to bring it into the fold. So giving us the ability to be on a fire 24 hours is only going to help with suppression efforts and make them that much faster. But its BC counterpart says last year's busy wildfire season left them with no time or resources to put the new technology into practice. We are focused on rehabilitation and making sure that our ground crews are ready and our staff are ready for future fire seasons. Leaving them under fire, especially since Alberta is contracting the technology from BC companies. We've got the technology, we've got the highest trained pilots in the world, and we're just not using them in BC, but they're taking advantage of them in Alberta. That doesn't make a lot of sense. BC Wildfire Service would not give a timeline on when the night vision technology would be implemented, only saying it could take years. Kamil Karamali, Global News. Just ahead, a family shattered by domestic violence. A restraining order is a piece of paper that you could just rip up and throw in the garbage. The monster that took her daughter and her message to other women suffering abuse. And Vancouver's fentanyl tax. The city has been collecting it from taxpayers for years. So where's the money going? We'll try to answer that. There are new questions tonight about how the money raised by the city of Vancouver's controversial fentanyl tax is being spent. The tax was approved by council nearly six years ago, but one councillor says she still can't get answers about exactly where the money is going. Romina Dea reports. It's been six years since Vancouver City Council hit taxpayers with a fentanyl tax to help combat the overdose crisis. 
How many millions were raised and how was it spent? The death toll still catastrophic. More than 10,000 dead and counting. I've asked those questions of staff and several years later, I still don't have an understanding as to how that money is being spent. And I think that that's very concerning. City Councilor Melissa DeGenova voted against the fentanyl tax hike of 0.5%, which council approved in December 2016. I think that when Vancouver property taxpayers are paying twice, we have to ask questions about why, why we're paying twice when uh, this is a province-wide crisis. More than $21 million in the fentanyl tax alone. City Councilor Sarah Kirby Young tells Global News she has not seen an accounting of these funds. Council needs to know how the money is being spent and what results we are getting for it. Sadly, we haven't seen the dent that has been made in the opioid crisis. In fact, um, we're continuing to see record numbers and the loss of life, um, and that's something that needs to change. The City of Vancouver did not provide a complete budgetary breakdown by deadline. COV is working on gathering more details. City Councillor Adrian Carr defended the fentanyl tax, which she voted in favour of. This is not, as the people say, a tax grab. I did talk to the city manager, and there absolutely has been um, a tracking of what has been spent specifically to combat the poison drug crisis with that revenue. Mayor Kennedy Stewart did not respond to our email. Vancouver taxpayers questioning what are they paying for as the crisis deepens. Romina Dea, Global News. An investigation of identity fraud in Port Moody has resulted in an arrest in Surrey. In June, Port Moody police received a report from a resident that a credit card had been opened up in their name and a $5,000 purchase had been charged to the card. Investigators were able to trace the fraudulent transactions and identify a suspect. That led police to several properties in Surrey where stolen property was recovered, including credit cards, identity cards and mail. The suspect was arrested and several charges are now being recommended. Port Moody police say this investigation shows how important it is to report fraud, no matter how seemingly small, to your local police detachment as soon as you can. Recent statistics have shown 88 women and girls in Canada were killed in the first six months of this year, mostly at the hands of men and usually men they know. And tonight, an emotional and desperate appeal from a B.C. mother who is dealing firsthand with the devastating impact of domestic violence. Imaragahi reports. Yeah, she loved the beach just like I do. The pain can be easily deciphered through Jana Jorgensen's voice. This is just unbelievable. It's just not fair. Four excruciating weeks have passed since her entire family was rocked by tragedy. We were just told to stay inside her house. Um, we had police dogs searching our backyard and the neighbor's yards. On July 21st, Eric Shistella walked into this Chilliwack home with a gun and killed two women he'd previously had separate romantic relationships with. His own body was found days later in the Bridal Falls area after suspected suicide. Did we think he was capable of murder? Absolutely not. But we knew he wasn't very nice. 49-year-old Mimi Cates and Georgenson's daughter, 43-year-old Amber Cully, were killed that day. Both women feared Shistello and had been staying together in hopes of avoiding him. Shistello had been previously arrested and charged with uttering threats. Cully even had a restraining order against him. The women did what they could have done. They reported the violence. 
they try to seek refuge by being with another woman, with each other. What failed here, what failed them, what failed their families is a system. The system did not make sure that they are safe. Violent men who threat, who are charged with uttering threat, should not be released to follow up on those threats. Having now seen the worst outcome of domestic violence, Georgensen has a desperate appeal to other women who may find themselves in a similar situation. My heart bleeds for you, and I beg you to reach out to, if, you, if your family doesn't know or you don't feel comfortable enough because you're, you're afraid, go to someone else, you know, find um, a, a woman's shelter. The family now taking care of Cully's two young sons. Years before, they also lost their father. They say a little prayer before dinner, and they always thank her for the time she spent with them. Jordanson is thanking everyone who continues to donate to a trust and GoFundMe account for Dante a Magnet. And also vows to try her best to fill the void left behind by their loving mother. Emadagahi, Global News. Coming up, a breakthrough in COVID research. UBC researchers discover a major weakness that could help destroy any new variants too. And a wave of revenue hits BC Ferries. First quarter financials show a lot of people traveling again. From the stories we need to know to a look at what's happening right now around us. When BC needs to connect, BC turns to the source that brings us together. Global News. Connect. For days, there have been questions about the FBI's search of former U.S. President Donald Trump's Florida estate and why classified documents were ever at Mar-a-Lago in the first place. Today, a judge heard arguments about whether the affidavit that laid out justification for the search should be made public. Global's Reggie Cicchini has the latest. That unprecedented search of a former president's home came after more than a year's worth of attempts to get documents back to Washington and finally resulted in the seizure of several unreturned items, many of which were deemed top secret. And while the unsecured storage remains of concern, the search itself remains controversial. On Thursday, the judge who signed off on the initial warrant said he wasn't fully convinced the affidavit that holds the underlying details for probable cause needs to be kept fully under seal. He heard arguments from lawyers representing the media that the release is in the public's interest. We are entitled to monitor the affairs of our government at all levels, and that is the interest in this essence that we were asserting today. But the Department of Justice does not want this to happen, saying it could compromise future investigative steps. A government attorney says it would jeopardize witnesses whose accounts are so specific they might be identified. The generic fact that there are confidential informants working with the government is not something that I would think is subject to protection. Only one of Trump's lawyers was in court on Thursday as an observer and didn't argue in his favor. He wants the affidavit unsealed, even though legal experts say there's a possibility the details inside could work against him. Trump is also said to be considering releasing some surveillance tape from Mar-a-Lago. Some of his advisors say this could keep the base riled up because they see him as a victim of political persecution. Now, the judge in Thursday's hearing has called on the government to propose redactions to the affidavit with explanations by next Thursday, setting the stage for a possible release, although it's unclear if anything inside that affidavit after redactions 
would be substantive. Reggie Chikini, Global News, Washington. Back here in B.C., B.C. Ferries is off to a busy start in 2022, posting records for vehicle traffic. The company just announced its first quarter earnings, and in the first three months ending June 30th, revenues are way up, almost $36 million compared to the same period last year. Vehicle traffic is up 74%, the highest quarter ever for vehicle traffic. Passenger traffic is up 42%. BC Ferry says while it has experienced staffing shortages, those have only resulted in less than 1% of sailings being cancelled. Bankruptcies at BC businesses are up since last year, but only account for a small percentage of businesses being shuttered. According to a new study by the Canadian Federation of Independent Business, only 9% of failing companies would go as far as filing for insolvency. The study found many companies would rather simply wind down. The CFIB found that 51% of business owners are not back to pre-pandemic sales yet. 56% are still carrying pandemic debt. Interest rate hikes and inflation have also been the cause of 17% of bankruptcies. And let's take a quick look at our weekly COVID-19 numbers. We have 366 people in hospital. That's down 19 from last week. 22 of those patients are in the ICU. 24 more people have died from complications of the virus that pushes BC's death toll over the 4,000 mark. And we have 877 new confirmed cases. Researchers at UBC say they've made a potential breakthrough in treating COVID-19 by finding a vulnerability in all major variants of the virus. Several antibody treatments have been developed for COVID-19, but they often lose their effectiveness against highly mutated variants like Omicron. UBC scientists say they've identified a flaw in a spike protein that the virus uses to get in and infect cells. And they've found what they call a master key, an antibody that attacks and neutralizes the COVID-19 virus even after it mutates. They say that could pave the way for treatments that would be universally effective across all variants. Uh, here is the identification of a site on the surface of the spike protein that is uh, largely unchanged across all the variants. And we describe an antibody fragment that specifically targets that weak spot or Achilles heel that we describe. And what's interesting is that we show that this antibody fragment is able to neutralize all the variants we've seen to date, despite the extensive mutations we've seen. So there's, uh, there is reason to believe that maybe this site will continue to remain largely unchanged as we see new variants. UBC says the key vulnerability can now be exploited by drug makers and the resulting treatments could be effective against existing and even future variants of coronavirus. Coming up, chilling out in Chilliwack. I wanted to do something that was going to make people smile. Mission accomplished for a man and his mobile ice cream cart. Coming up later, plus summer surprises. What's new at the PE when it opens this weekend? That's coming up too. The large packing houses operated by BC Tree Fruits have been recognizable fixtures in both Kelowna and Lake Country for decades. But those facilities will be shutting down, leaving dozens of people out of a job. Global's Jaden Wozni reports on the reason for the closure. 
shortly after announcing they would no longer be pursuing a so-called super plant near the Kelowna International Airport. BC Tree Fruits revealed they'll be closing both their Kelowna and Lake Country packing houses and instead concentrating on improving its Oliver facility. We felt that we needed to make a, an adjustment in the size of our business to reduce our costs and ultimately position us to deliver those returns in the future. The decision wasn't an easy one according to Sarah Finchin, but ultimately one that made sense for the company. Uh, the economics in this case uh, with the substantial increase in construction costs coupled with the increase in interest rates um, all come together. Uh, so even though the, the, the team in Winfield uh, has done an exceptional job, the economics would say that uh, Oliver is the right place for us to make an investment. The announcement means that nearly 100 people will lose their jobs, but BC Tree Fruit says it's making an effort to help some of the affected employees by offering them a job transfer to Oliver. Unfortunately, these are very difficult decisions, and we're trying to, we will be working with our employees in the union to make the transition as smooth as possible. Sarah Finchin says the move to Oliver will include new state-of-the-art technology for the packing line, which in turn will increase production production and profit. We haven't made any final decisions on which equipment we're going with, uh, but I am confident and committed to putting world-class equipment in place, which ultimately will help increase the returns to our growers and, and create that sustainable uh, cooperative and tree fruit industry generally. As for the future of the popular BC Tree Fruits market and cidery attached to the Kelowna facility, the status is unknown. But Sarah Finchin says the building will be put up for sale at some point. Jaden Wozni, Global News, Kelowna. Craving some of that Okanagan fruit now, and it's got to be ripening up in the sunshine. Heat warnings again today. Um, I don't know whether we set records or not. Yvonne's got all the details. Yeah, we did say I set a few unofficial records at this point with some of the heat even pushing its way in inland across the island. Factor this in mind, though, areas away from the water, we're into the low 30s, and with the Humidex, though, we've been feeling into the upper 30s. So unofficial highs through the day today, Port Alberni, 36.3 areas near Pitt Meadows, up to 33 degrees, Port Mellon at 31, and even Comox in West Vancouver included within that, getting up to 30 degrees. We are seeing a few other hot spots across the province as well. Lytton today getting up to 37, Lillooet at 36, and Kamloops topping out closer to 35 degrees. It'll be a touch cooler tomorrow along the south coast, but we are going to be tracking some instability and that'll be the big weather story. Heat warning will remain in effect for Metro Vancouver overnight into Friday morning. With the overnight lows only getting between 16 and 18 degrees, it'll likely end tomorrow, but we'll continue to see that heat warning into the Columbia and Kootenai. We've also got an air quality advisory in effect. Those areas impacted by the smoke over the next 24 and 48 hours. So the heat warning will drop off along the south coast as we get in through the morning hours. It continues into Saturday morning though. That'll be for the Columbia and Kootenai and continues into Sunday though along the north coast and those are areas inland with temperatures still into the low 30s so we're still tracking that heat it'll be a touch cooler though for areas that are closer to the water as we get in towards tomorrow and leading in towards the weekend also a heads up though into early next week it looks like we'll see a surge in temperatures once again so we're not out of the clear just yet and we'll continue to track that heat in towards the interior with some of those temperatures getting into the upper 30s once again. Instability for tomorrow will be the chance for some showers but the risk of a thunderstorms is going to pop up for all areas along the south coast. The southern interior will be included within that we'll be watching that very closely. The northern half its areas inland that will have that heat tomorrow much of the central interior will see a little bit of instability. The southern half picks 
picks up with still showers on Saturday and along the south coast we'll have all areas included within that slight risk of a thunderstorm windy conditions for areas near the water as we get in towards the weekend so far pleasant for both days highs up to 24 and 25 degrees tonight's weather window a great shot of the Milky Way that was captured in Green Lake Chris mm, that is beautiful Robin thanks for sending that picture in pretty decent forecast considering the PE is about to start and we are getting a preview of some of the new attractions the shows and of course the food the 112th annual fair gets underway on Saturday with a new exhibit by the Canoe Cultures Society showcasing Indigenous culture and identity. The Superdogs, of course, are back for their 45th year. Lots of food to eat, but the longtime booth of those little donuts won't be back. However, don't worry, you'll have three mini donut vendors to choose from. Together, we have weathered the storm of COVID-19 and we've emerged stronger and we're making investments into our team and to our business dreams. That includes the purchase of our new Skybender ride in Playland and the restoration of our beloved wooden roller coaster. This year's Summer Night Concert Series includes the B-52's Farewell Tour, the Beach Boys, Blue Rodeo, Steve Miller, Bare Naked Ladies, Kim Mitchell, and Bachman and Cummings together, which should be great. All right, I know one man who's looking forward to the music and the food. Squire Barnes, who joins us now. Well, I'm not quite as adventurous as you are. <laughs> that is true. I'll do go down stories there. on adventurous food, but I won't actually try it. That's but true. if you want to come with me and try it. I'll take whatever you got. You know right. me. Okay. I know. Iron stomach Galas. <laughs> the uh, Lions defense has found success thanks to making the proper in-game adjustments just don't make the same mistake twice and that's just showing growth as a defense yeah the bc lions defense has only allowed 12 second half points in its last three games and all of those games for wins mm, that team is on fire okay thanks squire also tonight the coolest dude in the fraser valley and why he says it's the best job he's ever had Squires here with sports. Well, we're going to start with hockey because this is uh, big news to Canuck fans and NHL fans. After waiting longer than the other marquee free agents, Nazem Kadri finally signed with the Calgary Flames. Seven years for $7 million a year. Considering he's about to turn 32 years old, seven years is a bit of a stretch, but the uh, Flames are more worried about the next few years and what's going to happen after that. Calgary's determined to stay a contender despite the loss of both Gaudreau and Kachuk. So they essentially replaced those two forwards with Jonathan Huberdeau and Nazem Kadri, which is close to what they lost. Obviously, Kadri takes over Kachuk's role as the forward with skill and snarl in Calgary. He was a guy the Flames actually wanted a few years ago. They tried to trade for him and couldn't do it. This move does impact the Canucks and more than just the Flames staying a good team. A contract like this to a player in his early 30s means J.T. Miller will be wanting at least what Kadri got, if not more, since he's a couple of years younger. Now, Calgary cleared some cap space by sending Sean Monaghan, who had hip surgery in April and expects to play this coming season to Montreal. The Habs will also get a first-round pick in either 24 or 25. 
depending on a whole bunch of conditions that's too long to name here, the Flames will get futures. Now the Habs were able to take on Sean Monahan's contract, which is just over three point or make that 6.3 a season because it's looking like goaltender Carey Price, who makes $10.5 million per year, might not be able to play this coming season because of a serious knee issue. Uh, this summer, he went through the process of, of a shot to the knee, uh, seeing if that would help. It did not. Uh, and at this point, uh, we don't expect Carey to be available uh, for the start of the season. Quite frankly, I don't know that there's a path for Kerry to return this season uh, through the rehab process. And Kyle Turris is retired after 14 years in the NHL, and he's coming home. He's going to be an advisor for the Coquitlam Express of the BCHL. He was with that team when he was young, from 2005 to 2007. That's when they were the Burnaby Express. Drafted third overall by the Coyotes in 2007. He bounced around. His best years were in Ottawa. He played last year with Edmonton. All right. Two goals by Ryan Gold last night. The Vancouver Whitecaps tried a new strategy. Score in the first half. Well, that was good. Take a lead. Julian Gressel made a nice pass there to Gold. The Colorado Rapids were giving the ball away. Vancouver was pressuring well in the first 45 minutes. Here's Gold's second goal. The Whitecaps began to flag a bit in the second half, but they still held on for a 2-1 win. Right now they're in a playoff spot. They'll take on Real Salt Lake Saturday. The, the way that uh, we forced them to mistake, we won two balls and we, sc and we scored goals, is uh, the white cap signature, I would say. And uh, as you've seen tonight, we need to be always on top of the opposition in terms of intensity in order to be the owner of the game. Yeah, Ryan Gold's been playing a lot better of late. Uh, the BC Lions are 7-1 this season because their offense, led of course by Nathan Rourke, has been great. But you don't get to that record. If only half your team is good, the Lions' defense is one of the best in the league as well. Scoring on this defense has not been easy for most teams. Looks to the right. Oh, and it falls incomplete. It's fair to say without the Lions' defense shutting down the Stampeders in the second half last week, Nathan Rourke doesn't even get the chance to pull off the dramatic comeback win in Calgary. The Lions' defense gave up just a field goal the entire second half, setting the stage for Rourke's heroics. The Lions' defensive adjustments at halftime have been a real game-changer this season. Let's say you got hit on something earlier in the game, you don't make the same mistake twice. You just go back, you correct it, let's say... So for some, for instance, you just bid on a play action. Next time you know it's going to be a play action because it's the same look. So you just don't make the same mistake twice, and that's just showing growth as a defense. I mean, second half is when you need to buckle down, you know. Second half is when you need to be better. Second half is when you need to give your offense and special teams chances to get us better field position, ultimately make turnovers as a defense. The guy in charge of all of those adjustments is defensive coordinator Ryan Phillips, who was a star defensive back with the Lions for a dozen seasons. He has seen it all in the CFL, so he can pass on that wisdom, but the key ingredient is energy and passion, something that oozes out of Ryan Phillips. You got to keep that same energy level and passion throughout the game and four quarters can be a long time when things aren't going your way maybe in the first half but our guys have been buying in throughout the course of the year and that speaks volumes for why we are the way that we are defensively in the third and fourth quarter. He made sure all 12 guys show up ready to play. We like we just so uh, show enthusiasm in the game. We just want to have fun, make plays and dance and things of that nature and then bringing that energy just like it means a lot to a defense, you know, 
sometimes people, it gets overshadowed, but energy and running to the football is what it's all about. It's also been about results. This defensive unit is ranked second in the CFL and getting better as they get to know each other better. Probably undervalued because of, I think, it's an offensive-minded um, league, um, but they've done an outstanding job and um, continue to lean, uh, to lean on them and, and their leadership. Okay, Seahawks exhibition tonight taking on Chicago. Geno Smith, oh boy. Put your hand over your eyes, Seahawk fans. He sacks himself by tripping over Travis Homer. Okay, so Seattle's down 17-0. But the good news is it's just exhibition. Okay, last night, Little League World Series, the Little Mountain All-Stars pitcher, Benjamin Dartnell. What a catch. Right up the middle, makes the grab. His team won 7-0, and they'll take on Japan tomorrow at the Little League World Series. And he's a young man that you know. Yeah, he, I mean, he hangs around. I hang around the ball diamond all all season, as you know, because um, my, my son plays. Not on the All-Star team, but Ben and the rest of the boys doing very well. And good luck to them tomorrow. All right. All right, take a quick break. Still ahead, a man putting the chill in Chilliwack just when we need it the most. This is BC with Jay Durant, who's brought to you in part by Van Cam Freightways. BC owned and operated for 75 years. Some new developments since we went on the air at 6, and Jordan Armstrong is standing by now with a preview of what's coming up on News at 11. Jordan? That's right, Chris. We're tracking a new wildfire on Gambier Island in Howe Sound. It is burning near Halkett Bay, if you're familiar with the island. And at this point, air tankers are said to be en route. This photo was snapped a short time ago from the Langdale Ferry. No immediate word if any properties are under threat, but we will stay on top of this. Plus, with the cost of living so high, the Greater Vancouver Food Bank is so busy, they need a new warehouse at 11. How you can help the food bank and what they say the city could do to make life easier for them. These stories and more tonight on Global News at 11. Chris. Look forward to that. Okay, thank you, Jordan. We're going to end the news hour tonight with something to cool you down. Chilliwack's Daryl Ralph has become something of a summer celebrity, reinventing himself as everyone's favorite ice cream man. In This is BC, Jay Durant has a story that will melt your heart. It's going to be another busy day. After a quick setup, Daryl Ralph's ice cream stand is open for business. Everything's ready to go. Best job I've ever had. One banana ice. Daryl built up his icicle tricycle, ordering parts from all over, and then hitched it to his mobility scooter. I want to get out and make people smile every day, make people forget about uh, what's going on and enjoy themselves. And this is he got all the pieces to fit the part. Whether it's the music, the outfit, they just gravitate towards him. Daryl lost his leg to cancer in the 1980s. I only have to buy one shoe, I get discount. He's having some trouble right now. He'll have surgery in the fall to deal with an infection. This helps keep his mind off it. And green, this is what it was all about. It's not to sit home and whine about me, it's to get out and make everyone else happy. Thank you. You're welcome. Good the little boy came up. And he walks up and he hugs my leg. And he says, I want to thank you for the ice cream yesterday. It was so good. He's become a bit of a celebrity in Chilliwack. Coming down here, the horns are going, people waving. It's, it's just fantastic. I get it everywhere. <laughs> I was driving and I saw him and screamed. I'm like, we have to find the ice cream man. Like, I didn't even like, really feel like ice cream, but it was just like, I just wanted the experience. Oh, that's cool. He might add a hot dog stand next summer if the surgery goes well and he can start wearing his prosthetic again. Knowing Daryl, he will. He'll be back. 
caramel drumstick. For now, he's found a pretty sweet summer job. His first season as Chilliwack's ice cream man. Oh, it's, it's an ice cream kind of day. I can't believe it. It's been extraordinary, yeah. The town and people that I've met, and people from all over the world. It's been fantastic. Very overwhelming. Going around spread and joy? Yes. That's nice. <laughs> there you go. I've got the best office in all of Canada. If I don't like it, I just move down the trail. Jay Durant, Global News. I wonder if he's got enough juice in that scooter to get him all the way to Burnaby. I sure hope one of these days we can try that out. Thanks very much, Daryl. Great story, and thank you, Jay. If you know someone who has a great story to tell or something you want to share with the rest of us, just email your ideas to Jay at thisisbc at globalnews.ca. Walking across the courtyard was hot today. I know an ice cream would go down real well. Yeah, it's be perfect. Uh, to cool off, we are going to continue to see the heat from many areas and towards the interior leading in towards the weekend. Do keep that in mind. The instability and concern tomorrow will actually be the chance for some isolated showers, even the risk of a thunderstorm for all areas across the south coast. Humidex tomorrow still feeling into the low 30s, and it should be more, a bit more pleasant as we get in towards the weekend so far. All right, sounds good. Thank you very much, Yvonne, and thanks, everyone, for watching. Hope you have a great night, and good luck again to the Little Mountain Baseball All-Stars playing Japan tomorrow.